Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Well Endowed Podcast. I'm Andrew Paul. And I'm Lisa Pruden. This podcast is brought to you by Edmonton Community Foundation, and we are a proud affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Edmonton is full of generous donors who have created endowment funds at ECF. These funds are carefully stewarded to generate money that supports charities in Edmonton and beyond. On this podcast, we share stories about how these funds help strengthen our community, because it's good to be well endowed. On this episode, we scratched the surface of Edmonton's history with racism. Yes, it is a huge topic that impacts many communities, each in unique ways. The history of racism in Edmonton is the focus of our latest vital topic. It is impossible to tell the whole story of this history in just an episode, or even in a single vital signs report. But we still wanted to bring attention to a few aspects of this history, with the understanding that there is still more for us to learn. Our hope is to raise awareness and curiosity and to help further discussion of Edmonton's history with racism. For us, this Vital Signs is about listening and learning. With help from our Vital Signs Advisory Committee, community members and stakeholders, we are continuing to reflect and find new ways to approach our annual Vital Signs report. Our correspondent, Emily Rendell Watson, finds out more about this vital topic and digs into the impact of assimilation and immigration policies. Let's take a listen. Every year, the Edmonton Community Foundation works with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to produce a vital signs report. It's a checkup that aims to measure how the community is faring. Now, each vital signs focuses on an issue that impacts the city, and this year, that is systemic racism. The first subtopic will explore the history of racism towards Indigenous and people of colour in Edmonton. I'm going to turn it over to Neka Otubalu, the Director of Communications and Equity Strategy at the Edmonton Community Foundation, to explain why they decided to start here, the limitations and the purpose of looking at systemic racism. Take a listen. This is the Vital Science ninth year, and in review of previous topics we've done, and from conversations and learnings from engaging community with the current you know, trend in conversations around the city and the province and the country, we felt this was the best topic to tackle for this year. And, and also in line with the fact that the city is also coming up with an anti-racism strategy as well. So once you decided to move forward, looking at systemic racism across the country and, and in Edmonton, what did that process look like in terms of figuring out how you would tackle this? The next thing we talked about was the advisory committee. Now, the way the Vital Science Project is run is that we have a steering committee and an advisory committee. The steering committee is made up of staff members from both the Edmonton Community Foundation and the Edmonton Social Planning Council. And then we have the advisory committee that is made up of community members and leaders. What we looked out for was for members of the community that were working in this space and also for members that had the lived experience. So we're talking about members from the Indigenous community, Black community, and persons of colour as well, living in Edmonton. Why was who makes up that committee so important in terms of informing the conversations you were able to have? 
they will guide the research and also guide how we tell our stories in the final report. What was your process in terms of determining the subtopics and how did those conversations go? So in determining the subtopics, we looked at ways in which communities have been impacted, so different factors. And we talked about employment, we talked about education, we talked about housing, um, safety, mental health, policing, civic engagement. So when we tabled these topics, it led to rich conversations. And then it was decided or agreed that it will be a great idea to start from the history. The history will set the foundation of the whole conversation. There is an African saying, actually, that says that you will not know where you're going to if you don't know where you're coming from. Mm. And so the history of systemic racism will tell the story of how the laws and beliefs have led to the systemic racism that we see in Edmonton today. When you look at the vital signs, there is a note on the research in terms of that addresses the terms and the data that's available and how that doesn't fully represent the variety of cultures that make up Edmonton and also how there's limitations to the data and limitations on what can be reported. Can you explain that more? The main limitation we faced with this research was lack of disaggregated data to get the facts that will drive the conversation around telling the story of the history or any of the topics we're, we're going to be featuring in this year's report. One of the limitations that we had was the page size. In the past, we usually have set limits or a process where we distribute our vital signs and we are limited to the number of pages and, and the size of the data and stories we can include in this. Based on the rich conversation that comes up in our conversations with the advisory committee and the size of the data that we have seen, do not disaggregated. We have to actually have a lot of conversations about distilling the, the data and not leaving anything out. Like what should we be talking about or what should be here in this report and what can we take out? Throughout the next four, including this vital topic, you'll be trying to get at that message that you mentioned in terms of maybe that's kind of a catalyst for conversation. Why is that important? In doing one of our meetings on this project, we had discussed what our expectation was as a group. We hope to produce an authentic report that will inform and educate the Edmonton community and wider community about systemic racism in Edmonton. We're hoping to educate the communities that everyone plays a role, whether they are the oppressed or the oppressors. We also want to educate the community that our community is diverse. Individuals shouldn't be lumped together as one group. We're all unique in our own way. And we also hope that the community will gain insight and understanding of the impact of racist action and understand that the work creates space for empathy and relatability to what everyone is going through. And um, we're hoping that we'll tell a story using the data that is collected. 
in the story that you're telling, really difficult to determine, you know, I'm sure what to include and what not to include, as you mentioned earlier. So how did you actually go about determining and making that decision? So for example, we had a column on the just released vital topic on the history of systemic racism. And on this topic, there's a portion of it where we looked at the timeline around immigration to Canada. And we didn't know, because we just had so many timelines and we didn't know which one to feature based on the space limitation of the format of the vital science report. And so we decided to highlight or represent a sampling of key events. And we also had to state on the report that there are numerous local, provincial, and federal laws that were not captured in it. So for every part we didn't feature the full picture, we had to put a statement to state that that was done. Okay. And the hope is then that that people do want to learn more, that they'll then go and potentially seek that information out themselves. Yes. Okay. For folks who haven't seen the vital signs topic, which is titled a look at the history of racism towards Indigenous and people of color in Edmonton, can you provide just a brief overview of, of what's actually included in the topic? And you know, you mentioned the decision around what to include and not to include. So what, what did the, the final product of that look like and, and where can people find it if they do want to go read further? It will look at the current demographics. So that's where we start from. And then we look at before it was Edmonton. What did we have here? We'll talk about the first people. We'll talk about the arrival of the Europeans. We'll also talk about the Métis script an Indian act and give a brief overview of how the residential schools were set up. We'll also talk about the immigration to Canada. And so we talked about the um, Chinese immigration, the black immigration, the Arabic immigration, the South Asian immigration, and the several other communities um, immigrating to Edmonton, to Alberta, actually. This was a tough topic, especially for the advisory committee and for us as well, because it's clear that communities are still hurting and having to sit down and have these conversations and, you know, was tough. And so I hope that we are able to achieve what we set out to achieve with this topic. That was Neka Otubalu from the Edmonton Community Foundation. You can find this vital science topic as well as all of the past issues at www.ecfoundation.org slash initiatives slash vital dash science. It is also available as an insert in Edify magazine if you can get your hands on one of those. Now, as I'm sure you can imagine, there are many threads to pull on from this topic that looks at the history of racism. So we decided to narrow in on the history of immigration and assimilation policies specifically. I spoke with Bukala Salami, Director of the Intersections of Gender Signature Area and Associate Professor of Nursing at the University of Alberta. Her research looks at the health of immigrants, and she has studied mental health of Black folks and temporary foreign workers, as well as access to health care for immigrant children. She has also broadly studied issues related to race and health. I started out by asking her to speak about the history of Canada's immigration policies. 
So Canada's immigration policy has actually been race-based um, in the past. So initially, um, there were preference for white Europeans and white Europeans from specific countries too. So there was a time, for example, where there was discrimination against, for example, people coming from, from um, Italy. And then it moved to around 1910, a policy that was implemented. Policy stated that we would ban you if your race will not survive the climate and weather of Canada. It was specifically a way to try and ban Black people, South Asian people, from being able to come to Canada. And that existed until the 1960s. We had that policy in place, and it was used to deter Black populations, including those who were trying to come from the U.S., uh, from being able to um, migrate to Canada. We also have histories, for example, of Japanese internment camp. We have history of um, Chinese attacks. We also have the history of Kumagatamaru, which was a ship from India that came to the coast of BC, was not allowed to land in BC, while other ships from Europe were allowed to enter um, Canada, land at the port. We do have this history. In fact, there was a time that um, a policy was proposed in the legislation that said the black race will not be able to survive in Canada to actually explicitly ban the black race. It wasn't passed, although it was sort of, you know, black people were still sort of not, you know, eligible to come to Canada and because of the broader policies related to, you know, if your race is not able to survive the climate and weather of Canada. That didn't mean that we didn't have black populations coming to Canada. But the law existed that could actually make immigration policymakers deny you from coming to Canada based on the color of your skin. Now, what about assimilation tactics that were also used? Several assimilation tactics in Canada. So um, we do have a multiculturalism policy in Canada. And oftentimes we think, you know, because we are, we are multicultural, we are not a melting pot. But people have uh, critiqued some of our multiculturalism policy, including its um, focus on only culture and not on issues related to race in Canada. So in terms of what you've explained about the history of the immigration policies and assimilation, what did that really mean for Edmonton in particular? In terms of Edmonton, so for example, there was a time that we had KKK group um, officially in Edmonton. What this means for Edmonton and what this means for the sector is, for example, if we had policies in place that really was based on race-based policies and also policies that actually structured who got admitted to which occupation in Canada. You know, when we talk about, for example, when we talk about awards and who's being promoted, we see many of those are based on lines of race and gender, white males. And of course, people are more likely to promote people that look like them. So what that has meant to Edmonton and you know, to, to many communities in Canada is a lot of those in leadership position are white people. And of course, that's because the policies that existed at some point favored, really, really favored white men. And of course, you know, the white men that left their position, they got other white men to get into that same position after they left. So that's what it's meant, and that has implications, including implications for health outcomes and also socioeconomic outcomes. In terms of the policies, what have they meant for policymaking today? 
I think oftentimes with policymaking, we think that, you know, we just do a bandage solution, but we have histories and we have legacies. We have histories, for example, of um, no sterilization of indigenous people. In Canada, we have history of slavery of black people in Canada and also slavery of indigenous population in Canada. So oftentimes when we think about policy, we think, you know, you know, let's be race blind, but we know that we cannot be race blind. That yes, in the past, because we have been conscious of race and in a way that we've been conscious of race to ensure that it actually harms people and was racist, that we also have to be conscious of race in a way that we ensure that it's anti-racist. There's also policy implication in, you know, allocation of resources. In the past, and now resources have been allocated to diverse communities. For us to actually be able to improve outcomes, we need to attend to some of those inequities, longstanding inequities that exist. Now, in terms of the racism of these policies, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but how do they continue to cause harm? So remember I said, um, there's a phrase that someone once told me that the workforce is like a cappuccino. It's white on top, it's black underneath. And of course, it's not something that just started today. You know, it's something that has existed. If I'm to talk from personal experience, for example, my mom came here as an immigrant, um, came in the 70s, went back to Nigeria and then came back in the 90s. And when she came back, everyone... She was educated here at the University of Winnipeg. And when she came back, everyone was asking for Canadian experience. She didn't have Canadian experience. She had education, Canadian education. But of course, you know, the use of the word Canadian experience is often the way that you know, people try to ban immigrants or prevent immigrants from being able to actually get into the workforce. That has implications of where she's located in the hierarchies. And for many immigrants, it's the same. We know that for many racialized people, the racialized population and immigrant population, on average, especially immigrant population, have a higher level of education than Canadian population and white population. But they also tend to be located in the bottom of the hierarchy. That has implications for income status, and also that has implications in terms of health outcomes. So for example, in the case of COVID-19, we know that um, racialized population especially black population, are more likely to get COVID-19 and die from COVID-19. And it's not because of genetic causes. It's really because of where they are located within the hierarchy. So they are located at the bottom of the hierarchy. And because of that, you know, they are more likely to be service, direct service providers, to be personal support workers, as opposed to being like a healthcare manager that doesn't have contact with patients. And that has implications. So. All these racist policies, of course, fits into um, socioeconomic status. I mean, sometimes we think that racism was something that existed a long time ago and not now. I did some research projects with black youths on, on mental health of black youths in Canada. And there was a black youth during the interview and several black youths, what they described as the most significant impact on their mental health was issues related to racism and discrimination. Specifically, there was one black youth that talked about an experience crossing the street. Someone threw a sloppy at her and called her the N-word. The same black youth talked about the experience of, for example, um, you know, sleeping over at a friend's house and friends making fun of her facial features, including her lips and her nose. And that continues to affect her identity. 
And because of that experiences, she has actually internalized racism. You know, she talked in the interview about you know not wanting to look black and always trying to look white because of you know the past experiences encountered. And these are some of the ways that racism continues to influence. It continues to shape people's identity and people's mental health and also people's self-esteem and perspective about themselves and their ability to be able to actualize and reach their maximum um, social standing. Pulling together all of, of what you've talked about in terms of your research and what you've learned and, and what needs to change, when you think about our city, Edmonton, and across the country, how do we acknowledge the history of these racist policies and their impact and ensure that future policies don't create the same damage, but instead work to repair some of the harm that's been done and build better going forward. So I think one of the things is really, really thinking and reflecting on the histories that, that we have, and also in terms of how we continue to contribute to racist systems. A lot of the things that we do now as racist tendencies and connotation to it that we need to address, including who is admitted uh, and who is promoted in um, several and um, diverse uh, workplaces. Oftentimes we think, you know, we have to be colorblind and treat everyone equally. The problem is that if we are colorblind and treat everyone equally, then we've not addressed some of the inequities that already exist in the system. And we continue to perpetrate some of the historical inequities that continue to exist in the system. So I would advocate for an anti-racist stance and also the need for us to have um, evaluation metrics that infuses anti-racism into it. So for example, a lot of times we talk about training people on anti-racism and we talk about unconscious bias and we do training, but we never evaluate how much we are meeting and the metrics that we have within organization. So for example, what is the satisfaction of diverse people within an organization? What is the disparity of people in management position, people in service provider position? And how do we take measures to be able to, and policies to be able to address those disparities? I am a strong believer in mentorship, and I'm also a strong believer in reflecting on how the policies in place in terms of who gets promoted and who gets mentored within an organization and who gets tapped for a um, leadership position. Those are some of the things that, um, that we need to reflect on. Of course, celebrating our multiculturalism is also a good one to do, but we, we cannot just focus on multiculturalism alone. We have to also focus on issues related to racial inequities. And we need to identify that race is, does not exist in isolation, that race exists with other variables such as gender, income status, and immigration status. And we need to look at in what ways can this intersecting variables influence and contribute to a social and um, health outcome. So for example, the experience of a black immigrant um, may be different from you know, the experience of a black second generation. Well, this has been really insightful. Thank you very much for your valuable input. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I, I just think, you know, the issue about addressing race, it's everyone's responsibility. 
some um, public health agency of Canada, some nurses organization, physicians organization have identified racism as a public health emergency. And we will see that in terms of oftentimes when people think about racism, they think this is something for racialized population. I, as a white person, I stand not to benefit from this, but racism affects us all. So, you know, I would take it, everyone to reflect on the contributions that they can make to addressing issues related to racial inequities and also the intersecting influences on um, racial inequities. That was Bukala Salami, Director of the Intersections of Gender Signature Area and Associate Professor of Nursing at the University of Alberta. I want to leave you today with the insight of Yvonne Chu. She's one of the founding members of the Multicultural Health Brokers Co-op in Edmonton. It's a workers' co-op that was established to address health and social issues that are experienced by immigrant and refugee families. When I was uh, recalling Dr. Salami's comment about the uh, policies, the immigration policy, it reminds me that even though immigration policy have evolved over time, it still carried a legacy in that, uh, for example, currently we have a policy that uh, welcome temporary foreign workers to come to Canada to work. And, uh, and yet, uh, while they pay taxes and they work very hard, they're not treated as um, part of society in that they're not eligible for many of the basic um, benefit programs, right? Just That's just an example. But what I wanted to say is, as we work with the families we serve every day, it's broader than maybe uh, an overarching policy that reflects a fundamental system of racism. We, we mustn't forget that there are four kinds of racism that impacts uh, our population every day. Um, aside from the more overarching policy, it's actually the lack of cohesive policy that fights against racism of all institutions um, and across systems, right? When many of the racialized families are encountering uh, systems that are set up to support their social inclusion, like employment, like education, housing and health. And when these system itself had not attended to uh, the cultural norms and policies and practices that are anti-racism, then it's perpetuating racism in an everyday way. And so remember, um, Dr. Salami spoke a bit about how, how COVID actually highlighted and revealed the impact of policies and systems that are uh, not strongly anti-racist. This is really indicated by how majority of uh, indigenous and racialized ethnocultural community members live in poverty. Poverty is an indication of the lack of gainful employment and you and I know when poverty is so chronic, uh, what happens is um, uh, individuals' mental health suffer and it really impacts family relationship. And that's exactly what we're encountering every day with COVID heightening the symptoms of or the impact of, of uh, all-round lack of anti-racist practice, right? And so what is very fearful for us is that given COVID and the deepening of um, social exclusion, is that uh, we could be at a pivotal moment of transgenerational uh, hardship. And it's actually the very moment we must remember, you know, uh, for the listeners uh, among us today with the podcast, we might not be policymakers, but during the daytime, 
we could be engaged in one of the following four forms of racism. We could still be part of institutions that are not uh, practicing anti-racist policies and practice. And so how do we make every effort to address that? We could be ourselves engaged in interpersonal racism without realizing, hey. And then finally, because we are human beings, we might have internalized racism, either holding a sense of superiority and entitlement, or uh, believe that oneself being of color it should deserve to, to have less privileges, right? Those are more critical thinking that we must hold every day. Every one uh, of us is impacted by racism according to those different levels, say more than the structural societal ones that we spoke about when we talk about immigration policy. It is really uh, these other forms of racism that we have to be very careful about. Um, Federal census have predicted that in 14 years, half of Albertans would be either foreign-born or children of foreign-born. So it's a population that is also growing very fast. And so we must be proactive in very diligently addressing racism of all four levels. Thanks to Yvonne, as well as Neka and Bukala for sharing their experiences and wisdom. Their words have given me a lot to reflect on, and I hope they've done the same for you. Please do go read the Vital Signs Report, as there's lots more in there about Edmonton's demographics, the history of immigration, of course, and more. The next three topics that will fall under the systemic racism Vital Signs will cover economics and education, housing and safety, and civic engagement and self-governance. Stay tuned. And thanks for listening. A big thank you to Emily Rendell Watson for bringing us this story, and to Neka Otobulu, Dr. Bukala Salami, and Dr. Yvonne Chu for sharing their perspectives with us. If you'd like to read our vital topic titled A Look at the History of Racism Towards Indigenous and People of Color in Edmonton, we'll have that link in our show notes. And that's where you can also find links to ECF's Well Endowed Web Show and the latest on our blog. And while you're there, don't forget to check out our upcoming granting deadlines to see if you could be eligible for some of our funding opportunities. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help new listeners find our show. You can also connect with us on Facebook, where you can share your thoughts and see some pictures. Thanks again for tuning in. We've been your hosts, Andrew Paul. And Lisa Pruden. Until, Until next, next time. time. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation. And is an affiliate member of the Alberta Podcast Network. This episode was edited by Lisa Pruden. You can visit our website at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Subscribe to us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter at BECF. Our theme music is by Octavo Productions. And as always, don't forget to visit Edmonton Community Foundation at ecfoundation.org. Well endowed.